All right, thank you, Marv. Well, good morning. You know, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve. I just heard somebody call me by my name. Was that you? Okay, it's better than what most people call me. Um, but uh, if, if you don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are going to be studying in the book of John. And I was just thinking as, that, as we were singing that last verse, I think it was the last verse, something about, I'm terrible with like song lyrics, but something about like if whole, the whole ocean were like something. There it is. Could we, with the ink, the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God would drain the ocean dry, right? Like, and John says that at the end of his book. We're studying in the book of John, and at the end of the book of John, he says not even all of the books in the world can contain the things that Jesus have done, has done for us. So, so I'm glad you're here to celebrate with us this morning. And we are studying in the book of John, and we're in John chapter 5 this morning, if if you're new here at Creekside. And, and last week, we, we looked at the beginning of John 5, where Jesus did this miracle, where he walked into the, the pool of Bethesda, which was this area that was jam-packed, filled with, I think, I think John tells us, with the sick, the lame, the blind, and the withered. It was this mass of suffering humanity crowding around this pool with this, like, I think completely vain hope that maybe they could have a miracle if they're the first person into the water when the waters get stirred up. And Jesus walks into this like suffering mass of, of kind of, of blind and sick and withered and lame humanity and he speaks and through his word he heals a guy. You know, and then Jesus last week went into, went into kind of explaining the purpose of all that and he, well, before that, he actually ran afoul then of the religious leaders of the day. Because the religious leaders of the day um, like really had this thing about the Sabbath day and honoring the Sabbath day. And they had all these rules on what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day. And the, and the fact that Jesus told this guy to, to pick up his bed and go home was a violation of all their, their religious rules. And, and so Jesus ran afoul of them. And, and it says, if you look at chapter 5, verse 18, it says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Last week we looked at that, how, how Jesus claimed, he did it in the verse before and he does it in, in what afterwards, how Jesus claimed to be God himself. And, and when he finds out that they're trying to kill him, and when they're angry at him for claiming to be equal with God, he doesn't like correct them. In fact, he doubles down on it. And what we saw last week in verses 19 through 24 what we saw last week in verses 19 through 24 is Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father. And he says, my relationship with the Father is so intimate, I'm paraphrasing here, that what I do is a perfect reflection of what the Father does. I speak, um, I speak the words of God. He talked about how he, how he has the authority to give life to whoever he wishes, that he and the Father both are able to grant life, and that he also has the authority to judge. And we we looked at the opening kind of parts of Jesus' like sermon here that he gives in John chapter 5 last week. You know, what we're, what we're going to look at this week is the rest of that. And I'm going to start at verse 24, and we kind of ended with verse 24 last week. We're going to pick up at verse 24 and go all the way through the end of the chapter, Lord willing. And, um, and it's going to break out in three, in three kind of main sections. The first one is claims made. Jesus continues to make claims about who he is to the religious leaders of the day. Then he calls witnesses, 
in verses 31 through 37, and then he gives a verdict. And I don't want you to miss that because you'll see it as we go through the text. But there's a, there's a definite like legal tone to, the, to this uh, testimony that's given today, to what Jesus, what, like this, the words that Jesus speaks. It definitely has this like courtroom drama. Anybody like courtroom drama kind of things? Yeah, one, two. The rest of you guys are going to be bored this morning. Um, <laughs> Because we've got a courtroom drama unfolding. Uh, because, you know, we just read in verse 18 how it says that, that they were seeking to kill him. And then in verse 19, you see how it begins. Jesus therefore answered, saying to them. Like, this is his answer to their verdict where they were kind of pronouncing this death sentence upon Jesus. And, and he doubled down on his claim to be God and says, I am perfectly unified with the Father. And when I'm the one who sees the Father, I'm the one who hears the Father, so I can do what the Father does and I can say what the Father says. And he's, he's the only one that can claim that because we cannot see God. It's Jesus who explains him to us. So why don't you stand with me and I'll go ahead and read verses 19 through 30 to kind of kick us off this morning. And then we'll pray and then we'll get into our text. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son of God, the son, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him things that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the portrayal that it gives us of your son, Jesus Christ, how he is the one who grants life and he is the one who, who has all judgment. And he's the son of man. And Father, I just ask that you would empower me this morning to proclaim him um, in all of his glory. That's, it's impossible for me to do that. So I just ask that you would reveal to us your son. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we kick off in verse 24, I, I want to just point out, like in, in verse 24 and in verse 25, both, it actually, he starts off with the words, truly, truly. And this is like one of the expressions that Jesus uses to like really add like weight and solemnity to like the things that he's saying. And I just want to be clear, like everything Jesus says is true. But this is kind of like him saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me me, right? Like, um, <laughs> 
You know, but the difference between him, like, swearing to tell the truth, like, doubling down with the truly, truly, um, and, and, like, when we, like, stand in trial and we, like, swear to tell the truth is, is, that, is that the burden is on the person testifying to tell the truth. And if they're untruthful, like, judgment falls upon them, right? They become, like, perjurers. Here, when Jesus, is, like, swears to tell the truth, he's not, like, worried about judgment falling upon him because he always speaks the truth. But what he does is he, he's not giving a testimony even about himself. He's, I mean, he's proclaiming who he is. And the weight of the truly, truly falls on his audience. Like, this is true. This is true. So help me me. And you better believe it and respond to it. Because the, the weight of this is on you. Truly, truly. And then he starts off in, in verse 24. I say to you, he who hears my word... And believes him who sent me has eternal life. It does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. That first half of that, that sentence, he, he says, if you, if you hear my word and believe, he doesn't say believe me. He says, believe him who sent me. What he's saying is like, I speak God's word so that if you hear my word and you believe them, you're actually believing God himself. Like Jesus is claiming that his words are God's words. And then he says that he was sent by God, that if you believe him who sent me. So what Jesus is saying here is that his word and his, and his life are the word and work of God. That's what he's telling these people who wanted to kill him because he was claiming to be God. And he says, and if you believe these words that I speak, and if you believe in, in the things that I accomplished, the work that I came to do that I was sent for, you have eternal life and you have passed out of judgment into life. The tenses in, the, in verse 24 are really interesting. He who believes in him has sent me, has, present tense, right now today, eternal life. What that means, if, if you're a Christian, if you've come to faith in Christ, you have this thing that John calls eternal life. It's a new quality of life. It's a new, like, spiritual life through the work of the regenerating work of the Spirit in your life. And it's a life that will never end. And, in fact, it will just continue to, like, experience more and more of God's glory until we see him face to face one day. That's the hope of the resurrection. You have, right now, eternal life. And, right now, today, you have passed out of judgment what does it say? That's, I, I misquoted it, I think. Oh, yeah, he does not come into judgment. You don't come into judgment anymore. Like, if the judgment that you deserve, if you've genuinely placed your faith in Christ and, and rely upon him and, and rely upon his work that he came to do, like, the judgment that you deserved has fallen upon him. That's what we're going to be remembering um, at our Good Friday service. That's what Marv talked about. Um, in, in worship, that's what Jake pointed us to in the Lord's Supper. Like our judgment has fallen upon him. And then it says that you have, past tense, passed out of death into life. It's an interesting expression. Because what it means is that the normal static state of humanity, apart from Jesus Christ, is that you are in death. Because when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you pass out of death into life. Like the default position of humanity is dead, is what Jesus is saying. And, and what we're going to see in just a minute, it's, it, there's a spiritual death. And that spiritual death requires in the future like a physical death. And that death will be like eternal judgment 
if, you, if we don't place our faith in Jesus Christ. He says, but if you do, if you believe in him, you have passed out of death into life. You know, Jesus goes on in verse 24, 20, 25 with another truly, truly. Um, and he says, and I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. He talks about two hours here in these hours of giving life and, and one in verse 25 and then in one in verse 28. But this one in verse 25, look what he says. The hour is coming and what else? And now is that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Remember what happened at the pool of Bethesda? Jesus walked up to this guy who didn't even know who he was who for all practical purposes, he had, been, he had been suffering and he was helpless and he was hopeless for 38 years. Jesus calls out to him. He hears the voice of the Son of God. He's healed and he's able to get up and walk and live. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a time right now today when Jesus is speaking the truth of, who, of, of his word, the truth of his work, and those who hear genuinely, we're going to see how that plays out a little bit, those who genuinely hear will live. In fact, the book of Ephesians is really clear about this. Um, in Ephesians chapter 2, I've got it up on the screen, verses 1 through 5. Um, look what it says. I'll start reading. I think I have it on the screen. There it is. It says, and listen to what he's telling us. He's talking to the church. And he's reminding them of something. And look what he says. And you all, if you're, if you're a Christian today, were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Like your dead spiritual state caused you just to be swept along by the world system. According to the, according to the prince of the power of the air, the, the evil one who, who like saturates our like entire atmosphere. I would say the entire cosmos. With his, with his evil and his temptation and his, his rebellion against God. The spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. So you were controlled by, you were controlled by the world system. You were controlled by the devil. It goes on. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Like the, so not only was, was the world system controlling you, not only was the devil controlling you, but your own like internal desires and lusts were controlling you um, so that the result is, it said, like that you are by nature children of wrath. You're dead, deserving God's wrath. But then like this verse five is one of the greatest verses in the Bible, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul says like, the def- like one of the defining marks of God's grace is that he takes dead people, spiritually dead people who have like no ability even to follow him because they're being swept along by the world, the devil, and their own like desires and flesh. And he makes them alive. That's grace. Just like the guy, like he did nothing to deserve Jesus' healing. And yet God in his grace like brought life and healing to him and transformed him. We were dead in our trespasses. 
and sins. You know, I think that there's some application there for us. You know, like what Jesus is t- telling us here, if you're a Christian, should speak t- to your heart as far as like your worship of the Lord, should speak to your heart about, about your humility before others. You know, if you ever like find yourself like kind of looking with prideful, like self-righteousness against about, about, at someone else who like isn't like living the way they should live, you've forgotten that, guess what? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were swept along by the course of this world. You were controlled by the devil. You were, like, following the lusts of your own internal desires. You might have done it in a nice, like, religious, like, moral way. But, like, it was the Pharisees who were, like, the greatest enemies of the gospel, and they were the most moral people around. You know, if we ever, like, triage people, like, Oh, I used to watch MASH. Anybody watch, watch MASH? I can't believe it's not on streaming services. Like, that was a great show. I watched it on black and white TV. My parents didn't get a color TV until I was in college. I was like, really? Like, um, maybe it isn't black and white. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, there, it was, a, it was about an a army hospital in, in the, during the Korean War. And, uh, like, every time, like, there was a battle and the helicopters and trucks would be bringing in wounded there was way more wounded than there was, like, doctors and nurses, and so they had to triage people, like, and people that were, like, too far gone to, like, be saved, they would just let them die. It was tragic, right? And then they would focus their energies on the people that they would hope to be saved. That's what I mean by triage. I think we do the same thing. We look out at our community, and we're like, oh, like, this group of people feels, like, pretty likely. This other group of people, might as well just let them go. You know what, this isn't, like, the world isn't like the Princess Bride, you know, like, you guys know where I'm going with this? Like, there is not almost dead, right, or mostly dead, I think is what he says, right? Like, that old guy is like, ah, there's a difference between, like, mostly dead and all dead, right? If you haven't seen it, it's a Christian movie. Um, Maybe it's not. Even Eric is rolling his eyes on that one, so I know, I know I've gone over the edge. <laughs> there are no mostly dead. There's all dead. And only Jesus Christ has the authority to make people alive, and he does it through his word. You know, and so, like, anytime we get proud, anytime we start to triage people, anytime we, we like, like our worship wanes, we forget that Jesus, like we were the same. We were brought from death to life, and by, it was completely by grace that we're saved. You know, the Jesus goes on, and he speaks about some urgency to respond to this message. Um, and he says, uh, starting in verse 21, he says, for, oh, not in verse 21, um, verse 26. He says, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to also to have life in himself, so the Father and Son can give life. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So there's two things about Jesus' mission that he talks about here. First and foremost, his mission is to give life and raise the dead. Like, that's super clear in the text. But then... That doesn't, like, take away from the fact that he also has authority to execute judgment. And then Jesus drops this bombshell to the Jews because he is the Son of Man. 
The Son of Man is a prophetic statement, uh, kind of going all the way back to Daniel chapter 7. And I have Daniel chapter 7 here. And it's this prophecy about this one who is to come. And it says this, And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Like Jesus tells these people, he says, like, not only am I God himself, but I am this guy. I am this guy who is going to receive this kingdom, and my kingdom will never end, and I will have authority over all nations and all people and all languages and I will pass judgment. Like one day he's going to come to judge the living and the dead. But verse 29, I think, hangs some of us up. And look what it says in verse 29. It says, well, I'll start at verse 28. And do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. And notice there, he doesn't say it now is, it's future. In which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did good to a resurrection of life, and those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. So a lot of people will look at verse 29 and just take it completely out of context, and they'll get all hung up out of that, and they'll say, like, it sounds like Jesus is saying is that when he returns, that I'm going to be judged based on whether or not I did good or evil, and and that I've got to be in this situation where my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. But he just said in verse, what, what was it? Verse 24, whoever believes in him who has sent me, has eternal life, and does not come into judgment. Like Jesus is clearly telling us, like it's belief that rescues you from judgment. But then he speaks about this judgment in terms of evil and good. You know, I think what he's doing for us is, is he's, he's kind of pointing us back to what he's already taught back in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, it says this. It says, listen to what it says, like pay attention carefully. He who believes in him... Jesus is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed." What Jesus is saying there is the problem of humanity is a heart problem. That humanity, by default, hates the light. And because they hate the light, and because their deeds are evil, they don't want to do what? They don't want to come to the light so that all of their deeds can be exposed. So what Jesus is saying, but, but anyone who does come, right, is not judged. What Jesus is saying is that this good and evil that he's talking about isn't about personal morality. It's about like where your heart is and and whether or not you're willing to come to the light. He who does evil refuses to come to the light. And then it says, uh, where is it? But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Both people the one who refuses to come and the one who comes, all have shameful things that they don't want to have exposed. One group hates the light, doesn't believe in the truth of the gospel, doesn't believe that there's forgiveness in life for all who believe in Jesus, so they don't come and they remain in their evil and they remain who they are. 
the other group, like, loves the light, believes in the hope of the gospel, believes that everything that Jesus has accomplished and comes to the light, and then their deeds are like wrought or made or forged in God himself. Their life is transformed. You know, the ultimate good and evil that Jesus is talking about is, is whether or not you're willing to come to the light and receive forgiveness of sins. You know, I think that there's some, there's some challenge for us because I think it's easy for us to get stunted in our spiritual growth. Even if you are a Christian, you, 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 I don't know about you, like, but I think there's something cool about God's grace in this. Like when I got saved, like I knew I was a sinner and I had jacked up my life and I kind of had like this big of a view of my sin and you know, now, like, and, and back then I had, like, this big a view of, like, my Savior because my sin was, like, and then I got married and had kids and, like, I'm, my, my selfishness and my, like, anger and all these other things that I struggle with are just, like, exposed day to day and day and, like, the relentless, like, pressure of being a parent just, like, reveals, like, who I really am in my heart. Anybody, am I the only sinner here? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And now I have this, like, huge view of my, like, sinfulness. But guess what? Along with that, you also get this huge view of who Christ is because you realize, like, man, he did it all for me. And, and he, like, the good is the good that he's working in me. You know, but it's easy for us to get stunted in that because maybe we just get, we, and we fall into disbelief and we stop bringing our stuff to Jesus. We stop, like, coming to the light or we never do. And we just get stuck there. You know, that our lives are this constant test of, like, are we going to believe in the hope of the gospel and are we going to come to Jesus and come into the light so that he can transform us and that our deeds could be wrought by him? You know, as we move on, and this is where it really takes a, our text takes a, a, uh, a legal turn, is that Jesus begins to call witnesses. And um, he says this in verse, starting in verse 31, He says, if I alone bear witness to myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the the testimony which he bears of me is true. What Jesus says, I am making some incredible claims here. I'm claiming to be God. I'm claiming to be the one who can give life. I'm claiming to be the one who forgives sin. I'm claiming to be the one that can transform you. I'm claiming to be the son of man whose kingdom will never end. But don't believe my, take my word for it. A lot of, anybody can claim that. Strangely enough, I, I started getting in my news feed today, all sorts of sto- this week, all sorts of stories about David Koresh. I was like, why am I getting stories about David Koresh? Like, if you don't know who he is, that's why I was, like, perplexed. But he claimed to be the Messiah, right? Anybody can claim to be the Messiah. But what Jesus does is he begins to call some witnesses. And he says in verse 32 that he has a witness he has another that bears witness of him, and he knows his, witness, his testimony is true. It's really important in the, kind of in the Jewish mind, because in the Jewish law, I have this verse up. Um, in, I guess it's in Leviticus, Deuteronomy. What's next? Deuteronomy. It says, A single witness shall, rise up, shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So what the law says is you should have at least two witnesses if you're going to claim something about somebody's sin. But the interesting thing about Jesus kind of like bringing witnesses to bear here is even though that they're testifying for him, 
testifying that he is who he claims to be, what happens here in the tone of the text is the tone changes where, where the, their testimony isn't so much for him, even though that's what it is, but it's against, it's against the Jewish people who are rejecting him. Because if, when the, if these witnesses are true about who Jesus is and they're trying to kill him for that claim, they end up being witnesses against the Jews. They end up like turning the tables on them. And, and if you've been with us in our story of, of, the, of uh, John so far and you've paid attention, you might remember like at the beginning, John 1, it, it talks about this witness that came before Jesus and his name was John the Baptist. And, and so probably everybody that's hearing this is assuming like, oh, he's referring to his key witness as being John the Baptist because John the Baptist clearly declared that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. But look what Jesus says, starting in verse 33. You have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. But the witness that I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in its light. What he's saying is like, if you guys remember, you sent a delegation to John, and you asked John who he was, and John talked about me. And John pointed you to me. And he says, and he was a lamp shining in the darkness, and, and you, you like enjoyed his light for a while. He says, and I'm telling you this so that you can be saved. Like John's testimony is enough to point you to who I am so that you can experience the life that I'm promising. But that's not my star witness. He's like, that's not the witness that I'm really I'm talking about. In fact, the witness that he's talking about, verse 34, is not from man. I've got a better witness, one that there's no way you're going to impeach. And he goes on, verse 36. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. What Jesus is saying is my star witness is the Father himself. And there's two ways that the Father is testifying that I am who I claim to be, and one of them is through my works, the works which the Father has given me to do. These bear witness of me. Like, you can look at my miracles. I just spoke this to this guy who had been healed, I mean, sick for 38 years, and now he lives. My works testify. And then he, talk, he says, and you search the scriptures, thinking that in them you have eternal life. It's the scriptures that bear witness of me. Jesus is saying the Father is constantly testifying about who I am through my works and through his word. Your problem is, is you just don't want to listen so that you can have life. You know, I just want to stop there for a minute because it's interesting because Jesus is, Jesus is basically telling the, the Pharisees that they think too highly of the scriptures. As a guy who loves the scriptures, that's like a weird thing to say. And anybody out there probably think like, that's a weird thing for Steve to say. He's, he's becoming a heretic. Start the music, have somebody escort him off. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you, may, you have eternal life. You think the Bible itself and your knowledge of the Bible is somehow going to like rescue you. He's like, you're, 
you can have all the Bible knowledge you want, but the scriptures point to me. I'm the one who rescues you. I'm the one who gives you life. I'm the one who saves you. You know, if I've, I, I think like, I try to meet everybody that comes in to church here, and, and uh, many of you I've met for the first time like three times at least, because um, for whatever reason lately, my brain, is, I'll blame it on COVID since everything else is COVID's fault. Um, but I always try to at least point out Rachel, my wife, or if even better yet, I try to introduce you to my wife, Rachel, because like my wife is, is like talented and intelligent and full of like grace and mercy and like her she has this fierce strength and this like devotion to the lord that's like unwavering and i just know like anybody that meets rachel like just their life is better because of her my life is better because of her it's like she she's god's gift to me like um yeah her combination of like fierce strength and like compassion and grace is just like something just amazing but how weird would it be if when i'm meeting somebody and i i'm like oh and you've got to meet my wife and i hold up her picture and she's like standing just like five feet away like look at her isn't this amazing that's what the jews were doing they're like man we love the bible look at all this information we have it's 1080p or whatever the thing is, you know, 4K. And the Messiah is standing right there, and they don't even notice him. Jesus is like, and you guys have no clue. Because, like, knowing about a person or knowing what a person looks like or knowing that a person is supposed to be showing up someplace is way different than knowing them. I think there's this huge warning to, like, young people to anybody that's grown up in the church, anybody that's done the religious thing, like you can have all sorts of Bible knowledge. You can tell all the Bible stories. You can like recite the Bible verses. Like my kids, when they were growing up, did Awana. You could have all the patches. But you might just be like clinging to the photograph and missing the, the sun. In fact, look what Jesus says. He goes on. Um... Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness of me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive the glory from men, um, but I know you that you have the love of that you do not have the love of God in your in yourselves. I have come in my father's name, and you do not receive him. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. Where was it? Where where was it that I was looking? I missed the verse. Um Oh, verse 38. Sorry, I jumped in right after it. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who sent. It's an interesting word, abiding. Do you have God's word and what it says about Jesus, like living in your heart? Is it taking root? Is it causing like genuine belief? Is it causing you to love the sun and come to the sun and, and come into the light? Is it causing you to like forsake all of those things that you put more important than him? That's the sign of like belief is that when God's word like abides and takes root and brings you to Jesus over and over and over again and causes you 
to follow him. And, and then he rebukes, like this is like his verdict, like in verses 37 through 47. I'll just go through these quickly. He just re- begins to rebuke these Jewish people. And in fact, now after he's called his witnesses, he's passing verdict. Look what he says in verse 37. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Guess what? You don't listen to God. You've never seen God. And guess what? I speak God's words, and I am the perfect reflection of God, so you don't get me either. Verdict number one. Verdict number two. Like, you don't have his word abiding in you because you don't believe me. Like, you don't don't really believe the Bible because you're not letting it transform your heart. Verdict number three. You search the scriptures, right? And, And because you think in them you have eternal life, these point to me. Like, all of your study of the scriptures is worthless because you've never, like, submitted your life to, like, my, who, my work and my word and my claims. Verse 43, you don't receive me, but if another, um, oh, no, verse 42. Verse 41, sorry, <laughs> COVID. Um, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Like, yes, he's like, all that you guys care about is whatever everybody else thinks. You might be doing the religious thing to look like, look cool or to look righteous or to look like to gain position or whatever it might be. I don't receive glory, but like, you don't like the love of God in yourselves because why? Verse 43, he comes in his father's name and you don't receive him. But, you're, but you go after all of these false hopes. If another comes in my name, you receive him. You know, what is it that you really, like, hope in that's going to prove that your life is going to be okay, that things are going to turn out okay, that, that you're all right? That's really what you love. And Jesus is saying, you know, you don't love me because you're seeking glory from other people and you don't come to me and you go after everything else. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? There's only one person that really matters what they think. It's not the person sitting next to you. It's not your people at work. It's not your classmates. There is one true God. There is one son, Jesus Christ. They're the ones that give life. Everything else is just deception and death. And Barbara, you can come up because Jesus concludes here in verse 45 and 47 through 47. He says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You know, he says this, he's like, you know what? Like, I don't even have to like pass a verdict. Because the one you claim to like be trusting in, Moses, who gave you the law of God, Moses like wrote about me. Like I don't have to like judge you because guess what? Moses will judge you. The very word that you affirm to be true is the word that says that like that you've fallen short because you don't believe me. You know, so I just as I wrap up this morning, I just want to challenge you. I, I wanna I'm just gonna challenge I mean everybody, but I want to really challenge one specific group of people. It's the people that have kind of always done the religious thing, that have lots of Bible knowledge, that maybe have never submitted their life to Jesus Christ completely. 
You know, I know, like, I grew up Lutheran, and I, I actually, what's the thing, we went through catechism class, I actually did the whole acolyte thing with the robe and lit the candles, and, you know, anybody done with that whole stuff? <laughs> and was far from God the whole time. You know, it wasn't until, like, I was, ex- like, the Holy Spirit, like, God gave me life and allowed me to see how dead I was so that I would cast my life upon him that I was saved. You know, if that's happening to you this morning, if the Spirit's stirring in your hearts, like, man, I've just, like, played the religious game and never submitted to Christ. Like, I just want to challenge you, like, life is only found in him. You know, for the rest of us, like, don't stunt yourself. Keep coming to the light. Keep pursuing the Lord because there's, there's no one else who has the words of eternal life. So, Marv, why don't you close us and then I'll close us in prayer. And, and while you're, if you're one of those people that is, that, that the Spirit might be speaking to, like come and talk to me after the service. I'll just be sitting up here for a little while. Um, I'd love to talk to you about that and, and see if you can enter into life right now. This morning. So, Mar, why don't you close this? Close yeah, this I'm going to apologize to the band and to Nevi. I, I remembered something that I, 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 I kept in my phone from January 14, 2021. This was written by uh, James Stewart, who was a theologian in the 1890s. And you may have heard it before. Uh, we're just going to sing the first verse of that song twice. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion, he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others. Yet at the last, himself, he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Yeah, I think about that song. It was Keith Green, I think was his name. That, you know, and I got saved, actually, at a, believe it or not, at a Christian punk rock concert. Keith Green, is that what I said? Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, I got saved at a Christian punk rock concert, so like Christian music was a huge deal in my early life, and it wasn't enough to sustain me. Um, so my r- early Christian life was kind of like, I don't know, uh, bad. Uh, had a different word, but Rachel would probably disapprove. Um, uh, and, and, Keith, and Keith Green was one of those guys that spoke to me when, uh, through his music, and then he died in a plane crash. But pretty young. I don't know how old he was. Probably in his 30s. How old? 35, yeah, in his 30s, and um, the Lord, for whatever reason, took him home, and and uh, and he's experiencing like life that we can't even imagine. But it, you know, it, ser- it serves to show like we just don't know what our days hold um, until we know Jesus Christ, because He's the only one that can give life and the hope of eternal life.
So let me just pray, and then um, I'll, I'll dismiss you guys. Father, I just thank you for Jesus Christ and that he has the authority to give life because he has life in himself. He's the one that's coming in judgment, but he's come that we could pass out of that judgment, that all of those like divine contradictions that Marv spoke about um, are found in him, and that your grace and your mercy and your justice are all wrapped together in what he accomplished on, on the cross. And so, Father, I just ask that if there's anyone here who doesn't, who hasn't like yielded their life to him and relied upon him and his finished work, that you would bring them to yourself this morning. And um, and for all of us that that have, that you would cause us to just walk in your light and and pursue you. So, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us and your forgiveness that's available in Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen.